lit lovers one and all, it is I, Graham Norton, welcoming you to the final edition of the Graham Norton Book Club in this current series. We have hiked up hill and down dale following the fantastical footpaths of fiction and the ordnance survey of story. Joining me on the journey with her backpack full of spare socks and Kindle mint cake is the intrepid rambler of reading herself, Alex Clark. Hello, Alex. Hello. The person, me, this is least likely to be met with a Kendall mint cake and a backpack and an ordnance <laughs> survey map, most likely to be hailing a taxi, I think, which is just as well. I'm a great fan of the great indoors. Okay, but you live in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> There's no taxi I near you. I live inside a house. <laughs> okay, yes, yes. In your heart, you are urban. Yeah. Somewhat. <laughs> Uh, now, have you been involved in any of the Booker shenanigans that have been going on? Well, I've been following it avidly. And in fact, I did watch the announcement and then I immediately unburdened myself of my thoughts uh, to the World Service. So, yes, I was fully on it. Um, it was a triumph for Ireland. Now, people are listening are probably all over who won the Booker Prize last month. But uh, who was it, Alex? Because it's fresh news to me right now. It was Paul Lynch with his book, Profit Song. Oh, so that's the one. Oh, so people thought the, the bee one would, would win. The Bee Sting, which is a, a book I absolutely love, an enormous family saga. But this is a story of a woman whose husband, a trade unionist, is suddenly detained in the new era of authoritarianism in Ireland, in present day or possibly slightly futuristic, or yes. who knows when, Dublin. And she then has to navigate through a society completely fracturing and coming apart. He gave a properly rousing speech, a real writer's speech, love for Camus, love for the great power of fiction, and a brilliant swirling of the trophy above his head to bring home to Ireland. It was just, Aww. I burst into tears at that point. All right, let's get to it. Our book this week is Danish writer Olga Raun's story of workplace unrest and mysterious found objects, the employees. Here to discuss it are Gabby, who chose it for us, Varshini, Stuart and Cherie. Hello, everybody. Hi. Hi, Grim. Uh, how's everybody doing? Uh, Cherie, uh, it's Christmas at your house. It very much is. Yes, as people are listening, it is Christmas, but right now it's, it's a bit pre-Christmas, but you've, you've, got, you've gone early. Why not? I'm a bit of a Grinch usually, so I thought I'm going to lean into it this year. It's a good idea. But there should be bunting up in Stuart Bain's house because you have a celebrity under your roof as we speak. I do indeed. I have got Anne Cleves with me for a week. Have you kidnapped her? You no, know, she's here of her own free will. And uh, she seems quite happy about it so far, although she is complaining that my house is freezing, which, to be fair, it is pretty cold today. Anne Cleves, of course, is the author behind Shetland, Vera, loads of other really successful crime series. Yeah, hopefully she'll survive the week. Is a former librarian going to solve a crime? I think a former librarian may be killed in a grisly man. <laughs> I hope so. And, uh, Cherie, what happened to you in Nando's? Oh, I can never oh. return to Nando's Finsbury Park. I misjudged leaving my seat and knocked over a giant bottle of Piri Piri hot sauce. But when I turned round, the sauce was dripping down a baby's face. <laughs> a, a baby 
Hot sauce. <laughs> I, I'm ashamed to say that I, I couldn't even help. I was frozen. I ran out of Nando's. I said to my friend, run for it. <laughs> was it extra hot too, do you think? Well, I got some on, on the back of me and it was stinging. So it was at least <laughs> medium. Oh, good Lord. Oh. All right, everybody go take an early lunch and we'll come back to you soon to see if the employees smashed all its key performance indicators or is up in a disciplinary. After we've spoken to Olga Raun herself and after Alex has given us her three of the best. And Alex, I understand you've gone a bit experimental. Well, look, I try to to get the spirit of the the vibe of the podcast each time. And Mm -hmm. in the spirit of Olga Raun and the fact that this is such an interestingly fragmented book, I have chosen three experimental novels of quite different types. Ooh, well, I'll brace myself. And uh, back in the more traditional realm, here's someone getting a little bit carried away. The music crescendos. And the dance picks up pace. Taylor Swift's lover and love story instrumentals accompany us as we ride our bit in the stars of history. It's a beautiful evening. Bridgerton has birthed a new king. He is black, queer, and dances like he's leaving everything on that floor. It is a story that as a child, I would have given everything to see on my telly growing up. And Twabuti Ben... My first dance guide who once told me if I kept going back to the studio, one day I too could wear the magical tailcoat. I did it, Ben. The irresistible Johannes Radebe danced his way into our hearts in the UK's Strictly Come Dancing, including being one half of the show's first male same-sex couple. He's just written a memoir, Jojo, Finally Home, for which he's voiced the audiobook. So we'll find out more about that later on in Talking Books. Okay, time to clock on with the employees. Members of a workforce are being interviewed one-on-one. The book is made up of fragments of transcripts of those interviews. And from them, we piece together that the speakers are the crew of the 6,000 ship, a spacecraft on a long voyage far from Earth. It has recently landed on a different planet, New Discovery, where they found a collection of natural objects that they've taken on board. It becomes apparent that the crew are not all human. Some are humanoid, sophisticated machines whose consciousness can be downloaded and reassigned should their physical form malfunction. Everything is regulated. Each employee knows their job and where they fit into the hierarchy. But as they begin to interact with the found objects, things start to change. Human and humanoids begin to feel differently about themselves, their lives and each other. Emotions, love, longing, joy and sadness come into play, disturbing the logic and structure of the workplace and blurring the lines between those who were born and those who were made. Until eventually, things fall apart. Olga Raun is a Danish poet, novelist and translator. The employees came out in 2020 and was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize in 2021. The book began when Olga was asked to write the catalogue notes for her friend Leah's art exhibition of installations and sculptures. In the month she'd set aside to do it, Olga found she'd gone beyond a catalogue and had written a novel. When we spoke, I wondered if she'd built the world of the employees based on the objects Leah had created. I definitely was very inspired by her art, but I also think that because I thought nobody would ever read it, it kind of freed me. 
And I had wanted to write science fiction for a long time, but I didn't really have the courage because it was kind of bad taste in my circles, you know. But Leah really liked sci-fi and was inspired by it. So I thought, okay, I'll give it a go this time. And if Leah likes it, that's my reader. <laughs> so it gave me a freedom. And so you had the objects, but then how did you decide on the form? Because it's such an unusual form, the, these fragments and recordings. Well, I was visiting Leah at her studio and I was looking at the objects and they are mostly made of marble. But each time you look away and you look at the object again, it will seem like it has a new form, like they're changing former shapeshifters. So I wanted the novel to do kind of the same thing. And then I was really interested in portraying a group. I wanted really to write with a lot of, lot of voices and a lot of characters and trying to make some sort of narrative that was not centered on an individual and putting that together with like a very common science fiction trope of found text. It kind of came together. And those voices, how fully imagined were the people in your mind? Oh. Did, you, did you know who was talking? Well, they're fully imagined. I mean, they came to me in the line of the supermarket. I really had that cliche, you know, experience about voices speaking to me like, oh, I have to write that down. That'll be a great first sentence for a, for a text. Um, but I wanted to write the book. So you as a reader, you don't have a lot of information. And part of the characters are people or humans. And part of them are like humanoids. Yeah. I wanted to make it unclear most of the time who you were listening to. So you really had to like confront your own notions about how a person would sound. And in the recordings where it's not clear if it's a human or a humanoid, were you clear? Uh, I would say it's 50-50. <laughs> but that's also because I really don't care. I mean, to me, uh, I think they're equally valuable and equally human, actually. That's kind of one of the points of the book, to take non-human voices seriously. Yeah. And I think that I identified more with the artificial people, I must say. Um, Gabby, who chose the book, she's got some questions about the book. Uh, one is that it seems so timely, you know, because there's all these uh, discussions about AI, but also space exploration is kind of back in, in the forefront of people's minds. Are you surprised at how relevant the book is or were you kind of ahead of the curve? Well, I think the honest answer is that all writers always think all their books are relevant. <laughs> uh, so, of course, I thought it was relevant. But one of the things that I really like to examine in this book is actually our relationship to our own ecology and to how we order the world and how we make hierarchies and categories. And I think these questions are very important for our time. I mean, some people will read this book as like a cautionary tale, like beware of the robots. But I hope that the novel also have another suggestion that could be not viewing your creations from such a like, do you say Oedipal place? Like Oedipus that wanted to sleep with his mother? Oh yeah. Like yeah. you have the idea that if we create something, for example, an artificial intelligence, it would immediately want to destroy us. Because apparently that's the story, right? The son will kill the father. Yeah. And I think we usually will view our inventions like that, that if they really want to be conscious, they would want to destroy us. So I wanted in the book to have maybe take the perspective of the mother and say that 
the things we create are supposed to, you know, outlive us. And yes, they can be filled with violence and revenge and anger. But I mean, as a species, we are also really silly and filled with love and artistic expression and laughter. And so if we create something, we will also give them that. And that's worthy of something, you know. Talk to me about the role of nature in this book. To me, I felt like discovering the valley was that was the beginning of the end. <laughs> that kind of that that kind of awoken the you know the the longing in people. Uh, wh- what did you see the role of nature in the book as? Well, the setup is that the characters in this book have been taught that there is only work. There's no free time, and you live on this space, and you you just work all the time. So there is no relationship to things that can't be counted. There's like, there's people don't fall in love. You don't have dreams. You don't have a relationship to nature. There's no care work. So when they meet and experience that, it becomes like an inner explosion because suddenly they have to renegotiate all these values. Um, another question from Gabby. Uh, she's talking about, you know, you, know, you're, you, you were um, listed for the Booker International Prize because it's quite an experimental book. Uh, Gabby's like, <laughs> I like this. She goes, does it encourage you to lean into weirdness in future books? <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is such a great question. I think about this all the time. When the book came out in English, it was in the middle of the pandemic and nothing happened. And I was just like, fine. And then I just remember being uh, at my mother's summer house making dinner and checking my email as one does. And the shortlist was there. And I was just like, what? It completely changed my life. And I think the temptation to kind of try to figure out what readers would like, it's it's there, but I need to push it away because it will not be a good book. <laughs> and also I have had tried to publish books that are not very popular. I mean, this book it wasn't very popular when it came out in Denmark. So you need to know with yourself that the book landed somewhere that you wanted it to land. Yeah. And then the rest will just evolve as it does. Olga, there's some questions we ask everybody. I wonder when you were young, what sort of books were you reading? What unlocked the world of books to you? You know, I think actually it was all tradition. I remember when I was like maybe six or seven, I very, very clearly sitting in the living room at night and my mother telling me some of the Grimm's fairy tales. Yeah. And then she had like a tape recorder. So some days later, I wanted to like retell the fairy tales. And that was like a very, for myself, for the tape recorder, right? Yeah. And that was, in that moment, I think I understood something about stories that I it's very important to me. And uh, sometimes I ask people, you know, there's a book that not a lot of us know about, but I'm guessing you've got many to choose from because there'll be lots of uh, Danish books. But are you picking a Danish book? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to recommend one of the greatest Danish writers ever, and she's called Inger Christensen, and she's translated into English. And you can just read whatever you want. She was like a runner-up for the Nobel Prize. Oh, wow. She died in 2009, I think. And she is part of Danish DNA. Nobody writes in Denmark without relating to her. She is such an important part of our tradition. And she's a wonderfully wise political poet and novelist. And she's it's very, very beautiful. And she has this 
deep understanding of poetry as being a natural product of humanity that I really, really like. Okay. And the final book I want to know is the one that you admire so much. You you wish it said Olga Raum <laughs> on, the, uh, on the cover. Well, I thought this was a really difficult question because I really don't want to write any other books than my own. But then I thought about it as what book would I like to like be in? And I really want to be in a book called The Cinnamon Shops by Bruno Schulz, which is like this weird, dreamy collection of stories from, I think he wrote it in the 30s or the 40s. And he's just a wonderful, surrealistic master. I would love to like enter that world. Olga Rounds, wonderful take on our regular author question. Uh, no one has answered it by telling us which book they'd like to be in before. And on her own novel, The Employees. So, Alex, The Employees could definitely be described as experimental in its form and in its content, which makes us work a little bit harder as readers. If we're liking this kind of thing, where else might we find it? Well, I've been very precise in my first uh, choice because it's not only experimental in form, it's also set in space. I am bringing you Samantha Harvey's Orbital, uh, which is a newly published book. It's set on the International Space Station, which is kind of elegiac in its own way, because actually the ISS is about to be decommissioned. So we're sort of watching something as in, you know, stars, the light that we see is light coming from years before. Um, what's interesting about it is it's about a group of people, a group of astronauts. And of course, this this actually happens. They're all from different space cohorts around the world, but they've left the world behind. So all the kind of the realpolitik, the relations between countries has to be left behind. Yeah. Um, but what is, I suppose, experimental about it is it asks us to think about how we think about time in terms of fiction in the way that the astronauts themselves are. Because what they are doing is orbiting. So they don't see one sunset every 24 hours or one dawn every 24 hours. They see multiple because they're going up and down. So they come up and they may suddenly see the western coast of Africa, for example, or a little bit of Europe, or then they'll come up over the Rocky Mountains. So you can imagine this craft just going around the Earth, constantly seeing different things at different points in the celestial day and night. And I hate to sound like grandfather time, but is there a plot of any description? Well, I think the plot... I'm hearing no. I'm hearing a big, loud no. (laughs) Well, I think the point is that when you are kind of unmoored from time, and if you are an astronaut and you must live in this bubble where you are really, really cocooned, you you stop having a kind of narrative because you stop having day. So how much is story to do with our understanding of the 24 hours in which we all live? That's my philosophical puzzler for you. All right. Uh, Let's have our second choice or your second choice. Okay, this is going right back to the turn of this millennium, to House of Leaves by Mark Z. Danielewski. Actually, he's American. It's Mark Z. Danielewski, I suppose, uh, which is one of the most celebrated uh, of experimental novels of that era. And we're talking the era that also saw things like David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. House of Leaves, I think, has been incredibly influential because it's not only got this idea of a manuscript that's found by someone else and completed by another person and who's the real person who wrote it and is the story they're telling true. But it also tells the story of a family who live in Virginia 
in a house that suddenly they realise it's a lot bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. And specifically, it goes down and it goes into a labyrinth. And is this true? Is it not true? Well, we have to get through many, many pages to find out, but it's really interesting. All right. And your final choice, Alex? I brought this one for you, Graham. It yes. is none other than Flan O'Brien and At Swim Two Birds from 1939. How to describe it? I mean, Swim Two Birds is a pub and it's as if everybody in this pub is writing a novel. I mean, let's put it another way. Supposing I wrote a novel and it was called At Swim Two Book Clubs and <laughs> you were in it, but then you, my character, started writing a novel and there was Stuart or Cherie, but they in turn were actually the landlord of the pub, etc., etc. And all that against the backdrop of Irish myth and legend. And so you've got this idea of labyrinths and time just going in stories, folding in on each other over and over again. But you're right, it's weirdly accessible and just very funny. It's very, very funny. And I love the idea that, you know, in the rest of his life, Flann O'Brien was also just a sort of weekly columnist in Ireland, satirising the whole of Irish society. It's sort of sacred and profane, isn't it? Yeah. Hey, listen, thank you very much, Alex. And if you've been too busy reimagining the tumble dryer as a wormhole into the 90s rave scene to make a note of all the books we're talking about, don't worry. Just visit the Amazon or Audible website, search for the Graham Norton Book Club and you'll find our webpage with all of the books that get mentioned on the podcast right there. Right, it's time to talk about the employees. Joining the Zoom call to do that are fashion writer, Ladies Lit Squad founder and northerner in the South, Cherie Millington. Hello. Reporting for work. (laughs) (laughs) Junior doctor and library enthusiast, Varshni Vishaykumar. Hi. Hi, Graham. Uh, Former librarian and now toy shop part-timer, Stuart Bain. Hello. Hello. Uh, Lecturer and Instagram book reviewer, Dr. Gabby Humphreys, who chose the employees for us to talk about. Uh, Now, Gabby, uh, what was your thinking bringing this book to the club? Okay. (laughs) There was was a lot of debate here because I think this is one of the most unique books I have read. And and as we know from a couple of series ago, uh, unique brings debate. Debate is how we'll say it. But I think this is such a brilliant book for a book club because it will divide opinions. It makes you question what's going on until things unravel a little bit. And I'm... I mean, from a selfish point of view, I wanted to reread this. This has stayed in my mind since first read. So um, I thought I'd bring you all along. I'm not sure if you're happy about that. We'll see. <laughs> all right. Let's check in with Sheree, because this is not the sort of book you'd read. You, I, you, you normally have like embossed letters on the cover of your books. So uh, <laughs> the employees is not that. I, I love a plot. I love characters. Um, right. I mean, it's going well. I don't know where this is going. I tried to read this for two weeks on my long commute from London to Margate and every single time I fell asleep. I was reading it sentence oh, by sentence. Asleep. On a, a defence mechanism, I think, I found oh, it no. very dull. Right. <laughs> Cherie, it's one of the shortest books we have ever read yeah. on this podcast. I know. <laughs> like, the audiobook is two hours long. Two hours. 
I read the entire Harry Potter series one Christmas <laughs> and I couldn't get through this tiny pamphlet of a book. All right. Uh, let's check in with uh, Varshney. What did you think? There's a book that I read recently called I'm a Fan, where the main character um, has gone to an art gallery with her boyfriend and she's walking around and she's getting really annoyed at him because she doesn't understand what's going on. And that's how I felt at the beginning. And I think it's come together a bit more towards the end, but I still don't really know what I think about this book. I think that's the point. Yeah. Yeah, I think it might be the point. Yeah. It better be, We're Gabby. going with it. <laughs> and uh, Stuart, again, this is not the sort of book I think you'd read. What did you think of it? Well, I also really like plot and character, and I absolutely <laughs> loved this book from the word go. I was completely hooked by it. The very first um, sort of opening statement, which is so dry and so corporate and so dull. Mm. And then the statements that follow are so poetic and beautiful. I think the contrast between that opening and what it went on to be just completely blew my mind. And I was none the wiser at the end of it. No. There were so many <laughs> unanswered questions. And that would normally, mm-hmm. in like the context of crime fiction or something, that would infuriate me. In this, it just makes me want to read it again. Wow. I mean, I'm interested, Cherie, that did it never ease up? Because I agree with you, it is quite dry to begin with. But then as things start to fall apart, were you not drawn into the world at all? I really wasn't. And I'm trying to figure (laughs) out why. I try to be open-minded when it comes to books. Uh-huh. But it was it was just so dry and I, I did want everyone just to die or go home. <laughs> <laughs> or go home and die. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Varshini, were you did you find any emotional connection with the I mean, it's hard to call them characters because we never really know mm. who they are. But w- did you find any emotional connection with them? I think it's really technically brilliant. I think to get the sense of dread and the sense of world building and the horror in a really short amount of pages is really impressive. But I think you can connect with them as a collective group, but it's really hard to say because I think the ending is wonderful. I think the ending is a really perfectly written, beautiful, poignant ending. And I found getting there really difficult. Uh But to be fair, as somebody who has read it twice, I will say that the first time round, the first third of the book, I did question everything. I felt like I was reading a HR work report. Did you find it interesting, though, that you don't get names? And at the beginning, with the numbers at the top, the, the statements are numbered, but they're not sequential. Then you're thinking, hang on, we've met this voice before. And it was like there was a sort of plot underneath that you, the reader, had to somehow find. It felt to me kind of like a detective story maybe i'm just lazy i don't want to do any work. I, ju- I just want an enjoyable easy reading experience and this did feel like you really need to engage all your brain yeah. power yeah yeah i had a bit of a vendetta against the book for being so boring and that i couldn't read something more fun it does definitely pick up towards the end but i think because there isn't a clear hero protagonist. There isn't a clear villain. There's Also, I was like, where are they? When is this? What are these weird eggs? There were more questions than answers. Because yeah. yeah, actually, I thought of you, Stuart, when I was reading, because, you know, you live an open. And it's that idea, I just thought what was lovely was that nature was such a big character in this book, that being alive wasn't enough. You actually needed the sensory kind of richness of nature. Yeah, nature is such a huge part of this. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so interesting. It's on a spaceship and it's in the future. But 
I found it really funny. I thought there was some bits really made me laugh. It made you feel all the emotions. It, it was absolutely horrifying. It was it was chilling. It, it was nostalgic. It made me feel so much and also feel confused. But that's why I liked it. Mm. I think I'm with you there, Stuart. I think it's definitely a big mix of emotions that it pulls out of you and in kind of unexpected ways as well. Because did you not get any inside street into kind of, I, I thought it was quite good on what makes us human, what, what's, what's nice about being human? I, I did connect in some ways when, I, again, I couldn't tell who was human and who wasn't for a while. But when they did say what they missed about being on Earth and those really human things and about having to kind of have a surrogate hologram child. But then I, it was very, I just found it very depressing. But it seemed to me very powerful on mortality. Yeah. Um, because it was to do with people realising that their lifespan was limited, mm. that if it wasn't limited, if they could just be re-uploaded into another form somewhere, well, what mm-hmm. did that mean for what life was? And I found that really poignant. Well, also that thing where at the beginning of the book, I think the humans are jealous that the humanoids are going to live forever. Yeah. By the end, actually, you kind of realize, oh no, death is a kind of a to be welcomed almost. They're seeing it as a safety net. Yeah, I think I did actually have um, a moment of Gabby, not again. When when I realized that I'd chosen another book on this crisis around dying, it it's a theme <laughs> in this series, and I don't mean to every time, but I think that's what I love—the fact that yes, this is in space, and I'm still not sure what these art objects are and I have so many questions but it's a very like philosophical book we get down to what it means to be a human if we can replicate this with AI and I think you will find whether you loved it or hated it Shuri you will find yourself going back to this book in your mind thinking it's it's a fascinating combination of themes. And did anyone guess the very strange origin of this book? Yes I did I thought at first the objects were going to be things from our planet that had been seen by the humans and the humanoids working on the ships. And we were going to get like weird, like abstract descriptions of like a milk carton or like a jug. So then I was reading it again and I was like, this feels like it's a gallery piece. And then I looked it up because of the dedication to the artist who it was written for. And then I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. I think it kind of feels like an art piece, though. Like, it feels like something that would work really well as a a performance piece. And I think maybe, Cherie, the part of the reason it was hard for you, because I found it hard trying to read it in dribs and drabs, and then I sat down and just read it in a couple of hours, and I felt that made so much more sense. I mean, I did try to do that, but maybe it's because, (laughs) actually, I don't love very pretentious kind of East London art exhibitions. This read like the notes from one of the, you know, you're like, what happened to oil paintings? Just a nice, a nice Andy Warhol. Like this felt like it was trying a little bit too hard to be out there and cool and kind of avant-garde. I would love this book to have a quote on its cover saying, what happened to oil painting? Alternate <laughs> <laughs> quote. Uh, all right, let's get to the big question. How likely are people to recommend this book to people? Uh, I will start with Farshani. How likely are you to recommend this book to someone out of 10? I've recommended this to quite a few people already. I think I've, I've recommended it to more people than probably any of the other books yet, just because I'm really interested to see what other people think of it. So I, I'd probably give it a nine or a ten. 
Let's go. Let's go with nine. Let's go with nine. Uh, Sheree may balance this out. Uh, how likely are you to recommend this book to someone? I would not recommend it to anyone. It's very literary. I love reading in books, but I just like good, entertaining books. And this was not entertaining for me in any way. So I'd give it a zero. A zero. <laughs> One of our few zeros. We we rarely get a zero, but it's a big zero. Uh, all right, Stuart, how likely are you to recommend it to someone? I'm shocked by that zero. That's usually my year <laughs> 40 is bringing out the zeros. So, uh, I mean, the Booker Prize would beg to differ. Um, I would de- definitely recommend this. In fact, I have recommended it to Anne Cleves and I will be going downstairs when we finish this and handing it to her and she's going to read it while she's here. So I'll get back to you on her thoughts. That sounded a bit menacing. The way yeah. you said that. She yeah. will read it. And then she'll burn each page to stay warm. <laughs> she wants the heating on. <laughs> uh, scores, please, Stuart. Um, I am going to give it a 10. Wowza. Okay. A 9, a 10, and a 0. Uh, Gabby, <laughs> what are you giving it? I'm going to be proud of it. I'm going to give it a 10. I debated 9 or 10, but with Cherie's 0, we can do with that. I think it. you could hate it, but it's only 130 pages. So it's getting a 10. I think everybody should try yeah, it. It's an easy read, yeah. <laughs> and if you don't enjoy it, at least you'll sleep well. Oh, you will. Good sleep out. Well, look, as it's our last show, there is sadly no one to tell us what to read for next time. So just let me remind you that if you've missed any of this series, then do go and hunt it down. We've got to grips with books by the likes of Mick Heron, Juno Dawson, George Saunders, Camilla Shamsi, Aravinda Diga, Terry Pratchett, and many more. You can find all our shows on Audible and Series 4 and 5 on Audible or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, guys, thank you so much for talking about the employees and for all your contributions during this series. Uh, take care and we'll talk to you next year. Bye. Bye. Now, time for talking books. And here's someone who wants to open your eyes. I want to show you a different narrative. I have always said you can't be what you can't see. Whatever your differences, and after all, isn't that what makes life so interesting, so full of magic, sparkle and joy? Know that I understand you. I see you and hear you. Johannes Radebe grew up in South Africa. He fell in love with Danzig from an early age and became national Latin champion. He starred in South Africa's version of Strictly Come Dancing and then, in 2018, joined the professional crew on the UK show. He partnered actors Catherine Tilsley and Caroline Quentin, but really hit the spotlight in 2021 when he and his dance partner, Bake Off winner John Waite, reached the final as Strictly's first male same-sex couple. Since then, he's toured in his own show and has just been delighting Strictly audiences again, this time with tennis champ Annabelle Croft. But the road to success hasn't always been easy, especially growing up in a racially and economically divided South Africa, a place where being young, black and gay was tough. Johannes has told his story in his recent memoir, Jojo, Finally Home, and he's voiced the audiobook, we spoke to him in the car on his way to Strictly Rehearsals, as you might guess from the quality of the recording. I began by asking him what it was like putting his story down on paper. It was absolutely beautiful. I got to do it while I was at home with my family, with my mom. So I got to reminisce about the past. They needed to remind me of what it is that went down in the past. But also just hearing their perspective of the story, you know, because I've got my beliefs obviously as to what has happened in my life but you know hearing mum talk about her life and her sacrifices 
really got to me in a most beautiful way. I've got so much respect for that woman. And that is the reason why I also dedicated the book to her. But it was honestly, for lack of a better word, cathartic. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of young people who choose a life, you know, away from their family, as you have, you know, you let your family know things on a need-to-know basis. <laughs> so how how much of this book was new to your family? Were you sharing stories for the first time? Yes, and they were sharing stories for the first time as well. And that was the thing. I mean, I talk about my mom and my dad's marriage you know, and I had a lot of questions to her, like, why did you stay in that marriage for that long that never served you for so many years? And to hear her response was quite mind-blowing because I then forgave her, I forgave my father, and I forgave myself, you know, and that was the beauty about it, to say that there's so many things I also shared about myself, you know, and I told mom where I was, you know, and how I felt, navigating through life, things that I've kept from her as a gay boy, you know, the shame that I carried with me and what that did to me for the long time. Me and mum now have a better relationship and, and all those around me because we were able to talk and I wish I wish that for others. And, you know, I think dance is this thing that has given you so much and it, it's given you this amazing life. But when you're a little boy... It also brought attention. It brought unwanted attention. How difficult was it? Were you ever tempted to give up? Oh, all the time, you know. <laughs> if it was according to me, I would have stopped dancing a long time ago. And precisely because of that, Graham. But I realize now, looking back at all of it, to say the dancing meant so much to me and given me so much than any of those bullies could ever, you know. And yeah. then goodness that I persevered. And Johannes, because you, you know, your form of expression is dance, that's how you express yourself. What was it like reading a book aloud? What was it like performing verbally for this many hours? <laughs> that was a challenge. That was a challenge because I also came back from South Africa that week and I, my, my cousin unfortunately committed suicide and this is the son of my beautiful aunt who passed away two years ago due to COVID that I've written so in-depth about in the book. Yeah, Graham, I can't tell you that after the funeral, I jumped back on the flight and I came back to the United Kingdom and then I had to do the audible for three days. I think that was probably the hardest things that I had to do. And yeah, I think I just, I had to compartmentalize and put things into into perspective for myself and say, you know, this is this is something that you have to do. We will deal with that later. And I've been taking it day by day, Graham, honestly. I feel like I need to go home this December to go mourn my cousin's passing because I haven't had the time to process it all. But I have, I've been kind to myself because I deserve that, you know. And also, you're incredibly busy. You've got to focus on what you're doing. Din, 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 din. Click the come down thing is upon me. Do you know what I mean? And that yeah. is the thing. Um, and yeah, Graham, I have to say, even after reading it and having that time to write it at home for that two months, you know, that's the, the beginning stages of writing the book, I realized how important rest was and for me to go back to that place to refuel so that I can come back here and do what I do. Yeah. 
because you know we never talk about that sacrifice of leaving your loved ones back home to pursue your career and you asked me why I wrote this book you know I wrote it precisely for that to say to the others that were asking me all the time how did you do it and because I couldn't reach all of them I thought let me put it on paper you know let me show them what it takes and the reason why I called the book finally home is because I am thinking of the future and I know that my future is here in the United Kingdom you know it's a matter of getting that indefinite leave to remain now but um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I have to say you know I have lived all my life in South Africa and I've got the blessing of my family to spread my wings and fly and I feel like honestly for the first time Graham I can dream this is a book podcast but I imagine because you know, dance was what you did as a little boy. You hated school. So I'm mm-hmm. guessing you didn't read very much as a, a little boy. No, no, I didn't. I didn't. It was only when I was introduced to mentors and people in my life during my dancing career, you know, who said to me, here's a book, read. And I was like, oh, my gosh. But honestly, where I come from, from the townships, books were not very bountiful. When someone did force you to read a book, do you remember what it was? Do you remember the first book you you enjoyed? It was The Alchemist. Oh, wow. Yes, it was. And that is also where I started imagining and, and like I said, dreaming and believing in omens, like Paulo Coelho says. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, maybe there is a life outside this. So do you turn to books for comfort? Do you turn for books when you're in trouble? Yes, I do. (laughs) <laughs> and is it, the, is it The Alchemist or other ones? Oh, you know what? Other ones. You know, I, I, I always, The Power of One by Eckhart Tolle. I know all these are a bit of a self-help kind of a thing and fiction. And tell me this, is there a book that you uh, repeatedly recommend to people as a gift or just tell people to read it? James Clear, Atomic Habits. I always say, if you're feeling unraveled and you just want to center yourself... Pick that book up. It's guaranteed to sort you out and bring you back to center. That is, it just centers me. It really does. The irresistible Johannes Radebe on books he loves and his own. Jojo, finally home. By the time you're listening to this, we'll know how far he got in his Strictly Come Dancing journey. We're hoping it's all the way. It is nearly time for us to clock off, but before we clean the pause area and log out of the internet, audiobook insider and chart maven Holly Newson is ready to fill in our timesheet. Holly, who is getting top marks in their chart performance review? Well, it's tricky to get through a series without mentioning him, and the time has come. Richard Osman's fourth book in his Thursday Murder Club (laughs) mystery series, The Last Devil to Die, remains high on the overall chart, crime thrillers and mystery chart and humour chart. The book also won't budge from the most sold and most read fiction charts. It came out early autumn 23, but it's been in the charts since pre-order, since before it even had a name or a cover. I cannot begin to imagine how wealthy these books are making Richard Osman, but they seem to be bringing joy and entertainment to many, many people. So perhaps this is their books that they're most successful and most wholesome. I mean, he's certainly tapped into something. It is weird, isn't it, that he's kind of clearly unlocked people who are not readers. It's phenomenal. Yeah. All right, Holly, uh, one to watch. So I've been slightly surprised to see Adrian Edmondson's autobiography Berserker hanging around in the charts, so I'm keeping an eye on it to see if it's going to stay put. 
And that, by the way, wasn't supposed to be shade to Adrian Emerson. I think he's very funny. Um, But to me, this was a little bit of an under-the-radar release. I didn't see it splashed about everywhere until seeing it in the charts. Um, The audiobook is doing well on the overall chart, biographies chart, and most sold non-fiction chart. It's an amusing, anecdote-filled book that doesn't shy away from mental health issues. And he is a really good writer. So I don't know if it'll stay high in the charts, but I definitely think it will continue to sell. Yeah, he was on the TV show. It's an interesting book because it's not that funny, but it really taps into a kind of nostalgia for, you know, when all these people Mm. were young, thrusting comics. And finally. Well, finally... Help, I Sexted My Boss, a hilarious guide to avoiding life's awkward moments by etiquette expert William Hansen and radio presenter Jordan North is high on the humour chart. Uh, This is a classic book based on a podcast situation, makes a great Christmas present or a perfect audiobook for podcast fans. Um, It's also, amusingly, a number one bestseller in etiquette reference, uh, which tickles me as I can't imagine this is the sort of thing people would generally go to an etiquette chart for. Um, But the book and audiobook are littered with five-star reviews. People are loving it. Mm, A book based on a podcast, you say? Mm, (laughs) Uh, uh, Thank you so much, Holly, uh, for those chart insights and indeed for all your inside information this series. Uh, Very nice to feel so in the know when it comes to book news. Uh, Don't forget, you can find details of all the books we talk about on our webpage. Just search for the Graham Norton Book Club on Amazon or Audible and all the information you need will be right there. Our clubbers have gone off to see if they can reverse Fleckle without dropping their Kindles, so it just remains for me to thank Alex Clark for whirling me around the floor in this last dance of Series 5. I thank you. Graham, the only person I would ever do the quick step with. (laughs) Ever. Tens, tens. Tens all round. And now it is time for me to hang up my tutu and get back into the broom cupboard. All right, we'll see you next time. Uh, Do go and find us on Audible or wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back in summer 2024. Till then, happy reading and listening and goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Graham Norton Book Club, an Audible original. It's presented by me, Graham Norton, together with Alex Clark and Sarah Collins. Our clubbers for this series have been, in alphabetical order, Gabby Humphreys, Giffer and Bennett, Jared Leachman, Jeff Watson, Katie Blagden, Sheree Millington, Shivan Davis, Stuart Bain, Saima Aslam, and Varshini Vijaykumar. The series producer is Jane Morgan. The producer is Gabriella Jones. It is mixed and mastered by Mark Pittam. The Graham Norton Book Club is produced for Audible by So Television. Executive producer Graham Stewart, director of production Rebecca Cotterell, and the support team Jordan Nightingale, Becky Nicholas, Anna Burvitz, and Anna Thompson. For Audible, the executive producer is Nicola Wall, the production coordinator is Nick Daker, and the production executive is Hayley Nathan. The commissioning editor is Claire Chadburn. Listener.